broadcasting from the Third Coast and recorded live at Tripide South Studios. This is The Hango Show. I'm going to get name tags. What I was originally do. Anyway, welcome to the first episode of The Hango Show. I'm your host, Hango. What am I guest tonight? Is my friend Mesa. Mesa has a doctorate in education. That's correct. Good deal. Don't be all formal. <laughs> Just us talking. Jesus. Um, and she is currently teaching elementary school, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And you do some college? Yes. Um, I teach fourth grade English language arts, and I'm also an adjunct instructor at a community college within the region. Okay, gotcha. Uh, we're kind of talking tonight about, well, everything. Uh, mostly, I really wanted to get your your views on the education system in the U.S. right now, because it's really a clusterfuck altogether. Um, where to begin? Um, what's the biggest, what's the biggest obstacle in education now uh, when it comes to, well, from your viewpoint, from, from teaching a child, what, what's, what's the biggest issue? What's the disconnect between the teacher and the child, the teacher and the parent? Does that make sense? Yeah, um, I really don't think that there's a disconnect per se between teachers and children or teachers and parents other than um, sometimes there's some misinformation that floats around that, um, you know, with, with parents, they'll get a certain idea about something like when Common Core came about. That's been a huge thing I don't want to say recently because it's died down over the last couple of years, um, but I know that was one communication hurdle that I struggled with and many other teachers struggled with. And even some teachers themselves had a miscommunication about what that truly was, um, and they would get frustrated with the teachers, and it turned into this big political nightmare because it was politicized, but it was actually put into place to try to equal um, equalize the playing field for students across the country. Gotcha. So say all this, all the states would be on the same page. You know, in fourth grade reading, these are the standards that you learn. In fourth grade math, these are the concepts and skills that you learn. It doesn't have anything to do about a technique in math. It doesn't have anything to do with certain material that you're read or fed is what a lot of people were complaining complaining about. They're indoctrinating our kids. No, that's not what it was. Um, I think where that where the, the disconnect happened there was a lot of um, school districts were kind of caught with, you know, oh, we're not going to do Common Core. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be a thing. And then it was, and there was nothing that anybody could do about it. They say it's a, it's a law now. You have to um, you have to follow these standards. 
when you're teaching in public school. So then the next thing was this knee-jerk reaction by districts to purchase materials that had Common Core stamped on them. So it was a Common Core wasn't something that initiated by the state. It was an it was a federal thing. Yes, that was handed down to the states so that all states would be teaching the same thing. Yeah. So, so whether your kid was going to school in this state or going to the school in that state, they were getting the same education either way. Right. Yeah, because before that, you know, you could be in um, fourth grade in Alabama and, you know, move to California and they may be on something totally different or vice versa. And I'm not just talking about, you know, at, at different parts of the year. Um, it doesn't tell you what time of year to teach things. It just says as a whole in fourth grade, you'll learn this. But there were, it, there was such an uneven um, spread of what was taught in different grades in different areas of the country that that was one way to kind of bring it all together and and make it more um, it's generalized in education. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you know where I stand politically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of, I don't think I'm somewhat down the middle. You know, I lean left on a lot of things. I lean right on a lot of things. Um, but I wouldn't say I'm in a left or right lane. I kind of, I'm a fence sitter, I guess. I don't know what you'd call me. Um, but I'm just, I'm not a big fan of government in general much less a federal government getting involved, because I'm sure not in favor of the state government getting involved in stuff. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I see what they were trying to do. Was it implemented properly at all? No, and, and that's what I was getting at. Like, there was ample time for a lot of places to properly train teachers on, you know, how the standards, they call it vertical, they're, they're vertically aligned so say, for instance, where this standard, um, say, I'm, I'm trying not to be too esoteric here, so I'm going to break <laughs> it down. For instance, in kindergarten with uh, reading uh, literature, there's a standard that talks about um, just being able to identify characters in a story. Um, there's a lot more to it, but I'm just I'm breaking it down. So then in first grade, if you look at that, that same standard, it bumps it up a notch. Like maybe you're able to um, describe this character some, gotcha. um, pick out some traits. And then as it progresses through the grades, you look at how characters change throughout the story in, in fiction. And, and so throughout the grade levels, those standards vertically align so that if a child is behind you can go back and see what the prerequisites are. What do they need to know before they get to this level? And if they're on level, you can look ahead and say, okay, what can I teach them next? And it helps to differentiate the education in that manner too. But instead of everybody being properly trained, and I'm not saying that people weren't, there were plenty of places that carried it out flawlessly, but there are also plenty of places that just said, okay, I'm going to buy this math curriculum because it's got Common Core stamped on it. Gotcha. And we're going to go from there. Well, let's say this textbook has what people call the crazy Common Core math right. in it, where you have to draw lines and sticks, and that's how people Chris describe Crisscross applesauce and everything else. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, and then we say, well, I didn't learn it that way. So this math is crazy, and I don't know why they can't just teach my kid the way I learned it. And the truth of the matter is, is that's not the intent of it at all. Um, They're not saying that you have to teach it that way. It's saying that the standards that are included in Common Core in this textbook, but you teach them in a multitude of ways. Um, You know, if you want to teach um, probability and ratios, and there's many different ways to do that, but they take it as it's in this book and this is how they show it. So this is Common Core. The teachers were thinking that? Yes. Okay, so the teachers thought... This is what the government's given me to do. This is the way I've got to do it. Yeah. Even though that wasn't what was intended to begin with. Correct. So they were supposed to show different ways of doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they they just said, this is what the book says. Yeah. I noticed that a lot of, of, of places, you know, I would have people come to me that were parents and they're like, you're a teacher. Please explain this to me. And, you know, I'm trying to tell them, you know, well, they don't have to do it that way. They need to learn um, that this is a way to do it. But as long as they understand the concept and can explain to you how they arrive at the answer, it doesn't matter. They can use different methods. And then they would go back to their child's teacher, and then the teacher would be adamant, no. It's got to be done this way. It has to be done this way. And I'm just like, that's just not True. But weren't the teachers having to learn Common Core along with the students then, too? Well, you know, as far as what the standards are and, and, and the different parts of those standards, yes. But the methods, too, um, if that's what you're getting at, yes. Yeah, as what far I was talking as about, are the teachers having to say, this book's got Common Core stamped on it now, so I've got to learn how to do it this way, even though... In college, I don't know if you have like a class they teach you. This is how you teach this because I never went to learn to be a teacher. So were the teachers kind of starting from square one as well with the students? I think some of them were, yes. Um, you know, if they weren't familiar with that method, they had to become familiar with it so that they could show the the students that. But, you know, that's part of teaching, period. Right. We all don't know everything. Well, it's um, kind of part of every job. Right. You're, you're going to learn you know, the right way and wrong way to do things. But yeah, being mandated something, you know, and then not being helped to implement it or anything else. I mean, I don't know what what kind of help this, our state gave y'all, if I had to guess, probably next to zero. Well, and it, it really wasn't the state level. It was it was by district. But oh, I think, so it was like local. local yeah, yeah. And I, but I think that... Um, we dragged our feet on knowing that this is going to be um, something that has to happen. We as teachers or we as community? As a state. Oh, gotcha. You know, some districts, though, and I know because I worked in one personally, we were properly trained and we were ready for it. Right. Um, Other districts, not so much. So... You know, I can I can say that I felt prepared from a local standpoint, but I know that there were colleagues um, that really struggled, and then parents that I know, you know, that contacted me as a parent and as a, a teacher, um, you know, that that were just really blown away by I, I don't know what to do, and it wasn't their fault at all, but I think that's been the biggest struggle um, 
you know, I know we went in a lot of different, uh, we went on a lot of different tangents there, but to this answer, whole show's a tangent. Yeah, this to, is not professional, please. <laughs> to, to answer your question though, um, the biggest hurdle for me, um, I think has, has been, um, just that breakdown of, of communication with, with expectations and, um, what we, what we should be teaching and how we should be teaching it. Um, and the way that we moved away from that was, you know, they, they enacted, um, legislation to stop calling it common core in our state and calling it college and career ready standards. Of course. But it's the same thing. And that's why the conversation died down. It's not, you know, Obama told everybody that's what I was to about do to say. Common do you think Core. it was because of the president who was implementing this more than anything else? Uh, you can pull I, it a little closer would, if you want to. I would say most likely. Um, you know, it, it really turned into this big political thing where it wasn't, it truly was not about politics. It was about trying to make things better for um, and more equitable for for children and students. Um, it it wasn't about indoctrination or anything like that. But that's what it was painted as painted as right. in in the media um, and in politics. So it just caused what could have been a positive thing to be this big nightmare for everybody. Gotcha. Um, but you know, our solution was change the name and then tell everybody we got rid of it. But we didn't. It's it's the same thing. Just painting it different. Yeah. Um, you worked. I don't know how long you worked there. You worked there when I first met you. I think you were working in one of the probably poorest parts of our state. Yeah. Um. What What was that like for you? You were commuting like three hour three hours each way, two and a half hours each way. Well, it was. It was um, about two hours and ten minutes my longest drive um, one way. Um, How long did you work out there? Um, five years total, but it was in, let's see, um, four different schools. Okay. Over a five-year uh, period of time. And it was really, you know, we hear stories about it, you know, that area um, how disadvantaged they are, um, how tough it is to teach there, how they are really struggling to find people to work there. And you really don't know how bad it is until you actually see it. And especially coming from working in one of the most prosperous areas in, in our state to seeing that and there's such a stark contrast between the two, it makes you wonder how is this even a thing? Well, that goes like, back. Why is it like that? Well, why we is were, it like this? We were talking about um, redlining the other day. Mm-hmm. Why don't you let everybody know, kind of fill everybody in on what redlining is? Because I'm sure that you can describe it a lot more eloquently than I possibly can. Because you've got a big brain and I don't. So explain to everyone what redlining is. Well, that that's nonsense, but What's nonsense? <laughs> not, not redlining the whole the whole brain thing. Oh, you you got the big brain. Uh, <laughs> um well, you know, lately 
in, in our political climate, it's been easier to talk about because more attention has been brought to um, what redlining is. It's not anything new. It's actually something that um, it, it occurred around the time of the Great Depression um, in the United States. Um, it actually happened as a result of um, some Jim Crow era laws. Right. Um, and it actually has a ripple effect today. You hear a lot of people say, you know, segregation's over, everything's integrated. Um, we have laws where everybody receives a, an equal education, and really it's not. There's this giant ripple effect that, you know, has been a result of um, segregation and, and Jim Crow era laws. But what happened after... Um, the Great Depression was that, or during the Great Depression, rather, is that um, public housing uh, became a thing. And it was um, offered to whites, and it was offered to blacks as well. Um, Everybody had access to public housing. But what happened during that time was um, government agencies and lenders started offering subsidized low-interest loans to um, whites to purchase those houses, whereas blacks at that time, by law, they still would not offer them, you know, the same opportunities to purchase the houses. So they're stuck, you know, living in the public housing, um, renting or, you know, paying the small fee that they pay, whereas... Um, the whites that were offered the same thing were actually able to buy houses at that time. Now, this was this was before integration. Yes. Okay. So once uh, once segregation ended, uh, this reminds me a lot of even like modern gerrymandering. Right. You're talking about the the, the red line and the redlining was where they would actually draw off neighborhoods on a map of a city with a red pen as an outline to where to keep this race stays here, this race stays there, correct? Well, redlining with lending is basically um, what they would do is once um, these these housing loans were were offered, um, government agencies and lending agencies, companies would do that they would block off you know this area is predominantly white so it's better to invest here this area is predominantly black now so we don't want to put our money here so if if the quote-unquote white neighborhood is between main and fifth street that's where we want to dump all of our money in then right and so you know if if somebody wanted to take out a home loan and buy buy a house in that area they would be able to, whereas if somebody from a black neighborhood wanted to buy their house, they would be like, this is not in our best oper- in our right. best interest to um, lend you the money to buy this home. And so they would be denied loans on uh, solely on their, their race and location alone. And that house would stay in the public housing mm-hmm. area. Yeah. Gotcha. And, you know, they, they created the Fair um, Housing Act in 1968 where that was illegal. They weren't allowed to do that. But, you know, there's been evidence that it actually still occurs um, 
in different areas, especially larger cities. Um, you know, they, they did a study in Atlanta probably about a decade ago where they were looking at um, who was offered loans in what areas, how much money, how much interest. And you can just see that even though that that legislation was enacted, um, I guess, 50 years ago now, there's still a ripple effect from that. Um, and the way we see that in education is, um, well, well, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, we know that the two biggest ways to build wealth is education and homeowning, right? For the most part. I, I somewhat agree with that. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, if you, but if you're a homeowner, that's a quick way to build wealth. Well, you get, you're getting equity in your house as you pay it off and stuff. Exactly. The education thing, to a point, I agree with that. You know, I understand that, you know, supposedly, supposedly, if you go to college, you're more likely to make more money and whatnot. <clears throat> but I think even, I think more now, um, there's been, if not... In the last five years, in the five years to come, there's going to be a big swing in that. I think, um, because, you know, I didn't go to a four-year college. I went to a a trade school, you know, and I I got a a two-year trade degree. I think um, as more and more of these older guys in trades, whether it be welders or truck drivers or, you know, auto mechanics, plumbers, have you ever tried to get a plumber recently? It's next to impossible because they're all retiring. And I think if, uh, if, if, if kids are given a chance, I know like even here, <coughs> we have um, like our Votech centers with our high schools. If, if kids aren't excelling in a classroom, but you take them to the Votech center and they're a wizard with Bondo and can do body work on a car. That's going to take them a lot further, in my opinion, than any four-year degree will. And I think when when people start realizing that, hey, last time we got a plumber, he was 75 years old. He could barely move. He was the last one in town. I think once kids start seeing that there's you can make it's some there's some dirty work out there to do. I mean, plumbing ain't clean, but it pays really well. I think once kids see that you can make money if you're willing to actually get dirty and work, you'll make a huge difference. Um, especially if that's if that is given to someone who is not excelling in the classroom. I'm pointing at me. I mean, I was C's all the way through high school. I was not the smartest tool in the shed, to say the least. But you know, I knew a lot of guys who went to welding classes, and and they're raking in the money now. You know, they either got they got in the boilermakers union or they got in a pipe fitters union, and they make a ton of money now. You know, so I think education uh, isn't necessarily equated to wealth. It helps. I mean, because even even if you are going get get a two year trade degree or something, you're still being educated. So yeah, I, I do think I, I don't necessarily believe that four year education equates to wealth. Oh yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, and I, I 
I should clarify with education, I mean like just a good solid foundation. Right, but like, like a good high school education. Yeah. But that it, goes back to me talking about you working in the district you did when I met you. You know, are those kids getting a solid high school education or a solid elementary school education? Well, you know, and that. <laughs> and they're not it, degrading the teachers out there. I'm just right. saying, are those kids in a environment, whether it be at school or home, either one, are they in an environment where they can actually get a decent education? Not, not to what um, they should be. Right. You know, they might look up and have, you know, a teacher that can just work miracles with nothing. And I'm not saying that if you can't do that, you're not a good teacher. Like, we we all have our strengths and weaknesses. Absolutely. Um, but I think that it all falls back to um, being able to have those resources. So to tie that back into um, your question with the redlining, how that plays into education today, that ripple effect. Um, our schools are largely funded by property tax. Right. So what kind of, you know, what kind of taxes are you getting from public housing? Right. What, what kind of, you know, tax money is being put into education in these um, redlined areas where, you know, you're not getting as much property tax and, you know, there's one local district. I'll give you an example because, I've, like I said, I've worked on both sides. Because of property tax, you can go work there and not want for anything. You have your classrooms are equipped with the newest technology. You have resources at your fingertips. Ask for it. You get it. Teachers get paid $5,000 a year more. But I can drive a mile down the road. And the ceiling's falling in. Right. Um, the teachers aren't getting paid as much. Um, you don't have the resources that you need. So that plays a huge part in how um, those kind of things affect our education system and how, you know, we can have this group of children in this area do so well and prosper versus this area stays in perpetual poverty because a lot of it is linked back to that redlining and its effect on education. Um, so, you know, like to reiterate what we were saying earlier with the education part and building wealth, it would be, you know, even in these trades, you still have to do some basic amount of reading. Oh, yes. Arithmetic. I, I so that's, that is what I was getting yeah, at. Yeah, I got you. With that. Sorry about my little tangent there. No, no, no. That's, <laughs> I totally agree. And, and I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know, I think I, I went through all the education that I did. Um, I, I don't regret it at all, but I think mainly it was to prove a point because I came from, you know, being raised by grandparents that didn't make it out of middle school right. and worked in you know, cotton fields and, um, you know, raised by, a, a, you know, a parent that was a high school dropout. And so I, I did it more for, for me, I guess, than I did because I thought that it was going to, you know, make me rich because we all know in education, for the most part, you roll in the cash. You're not, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, you know, making it rain all day, every day. But um, <laughs> um, 
you know, it, there's this, this huge, um, it's just like this circular effect that, that it, it plays on education with the poverty because, um, you know, with that lack of, of money, uh, you don't have the resources, you don't have the technology. Um, it makes working harder. And so, you know, teachers don't want to, they, they may go for a little while, you know, if they don't have anywhere else to go. And, but then, you know, they see these opportunities. Oh, I can go over here and make more money or I can go over here and I don't have to, you know, Google or Pinterest all night trying to figure out how to teach this when I don't have the things to teach it with. So there's that. Um, and then, you know, you and I were talking about um, COVID's impact on all of that. Mm. And that just amplifies it um, tenfold or more. So are y'all still in the classroom now? Yes. Okay. Well, I knew some schools stopped I reckon around Christmas. They were going to go back to all homeschooling. But y'all are still doing classroom studies then? We are. Um, and a lot of... What they did was they left it up to the districts. They said, you know, you do what you will with it, and superintendents are making the choice as to, you know, whether teachers come in person or they teach online or they do a hybrid. And what I've been doing since August is a hybrid um, where I teach my class during the day, but then students that opt to stay home, I'm still on Google Classroom teaching them as well. You're teaching them in teaching them in tandem with the live class you have in there, or no, separate. It's separate, um, and it, that's really just the best way to do that because when you have students at home, they may not be able to log on at a certain time. Um, you know, like if they if it depends. So I have. I have to cut that because I'm stumbling over my words. You're fine. We, I, we don't cut anything on this. We're going. <laughs> we're shooting from the hip. This whole show. I have, um, you know, I have students that they can't start working on their online stuff until their parents get home because they might be at a relative's house gotcha. that doesn't have access. Okay. So you just have to do the best you can with what you've got, and um, you know, funding is. Played a huge role with that as well. Schools did get some money, you know, for COVID relief, but um, when you're already short on things, um, it really doesn't help address other issues like students that don't have internet access. Period. You can give them a laptop. Where are they going to go and get? They're not even giving them laptops. They're giving them a Chromebook. That's are they, are they giving laptops now? Well, I like I said, everybody orders different things, but you're correct that for the most part, a lot of schools have Chromebooks, right? Or, or it's an iPad. Yeah, you know that's Tablet. not that's not a fully functioning laptop. You know, a Chromebook, from what I understand, is useless if it's not connected to the internet. Um, I think some companies around here are making strides to give actual high speed internet. We've got it here locally now. Um, like actual true to life high speed internet that actually works a hundred percent of the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places here that either number one out here in some of these boondocks that have gotten no internet access, or it's a family who doesn't have the means to pay for internet access. 
you know, so, I mean, it's a huge hurdle, especially during something like this, especially when they don't want to let their kid go to school to begin with, not to begin with, they don't want their kid to go to school in the middle of the COVID stuff, you know? So now that you're doing the adjunct work, you're seeing the kids come from high school and into college. Is there a big gap there? Yes. Um, well, with the students that I teach, because just, you know, it, it's it's kind of um, the way I explain it to people is I teach my fourth graders reading and then I go teach college students the same concepts because at the end of the day, to be a good reader, you have to understand things like how to use context clues to unlock vocabulary that you don't know while you're reading so that you're not stopping and looking in a dictionary every other minute. Um, You have to know how to um, find a main idea. Um, You know, you have to know how to locate uh, details to support that. Um, You need to know the difference between fact and opinion. So it's, it's the, it's the reading comprehension. That's the biggest problem. Well, there's a lot of things that, that... Or is it just a problem altogether? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that, that add up to comprehension. There's a lot of things that go into that. First, you have to know how to decode words, period. Right. Um, and there's a lot of science that goes into that. But when you know how to decode words, then you have to be able to do that fluently and rapidly. Uh, because if you can't, that affects your comprehension and then you also have to have a certain amount of background knowledge on vocabulary. And all of that equals comprehension. So within comprehension, you have all of those sub-levels, like little skills that I was talking about mm-hmm. earlier, like being able to make inferences, um, using your context clues and things like that. And that's what I teach these college students. So a lot of times I bring in graphic organizers from my class that I've taught during the day to help with these. And these are all the reason why they take the class that I teach at the college is because, um, you know, they, they, they did not score proficient on their ACT in areas where reading like, would be necessary. Like remedial, remedial work then? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. It's called um, reading for academic success. Gotcha. Okay, well, I didn't know what you were teaching at yeah. the college level. You just said that you were doing adjunct work. Yeah. And I went to use that word a minute ago. My big brain stopped working, so that's the reason I had you tell everybody what <laughs> you do, because I could not remember. Well, yeah, that that's what I was getting at with that. Is it, you know, it was funny you asked that question, because I, I do teach you know public school fourth grade and I do teach community college as an adjunct, but I'm basically teaching the same thing because um, right now with this um, age group and demographic, um, there is a a large gap with reading. And then it just so happens that the community college that I teach at um, is in a very, um, it's a, it's more in in an area that I believe has suffered a lot of, of redlining. Because gotcha. like I said earlier, a lot of um, metropolitan areas um, are affected by that more so than... I don't want to say that rural areas aren't, but you really it's see It's not it. as bad, I don't think. 
Yeah, you really see it in in those larger areas. It's more prominent. And so a lot of the students that are coming there, they're actually actually attending um, that college because they're wanting to get into trades or vocations. Okay. uh, It does offer some... uh, some course, some uh, majors that that segue into four year degrees if they want to go that route, but um, they also offer two year programs or one year certificates. But you know, I get people who um, are going into early childhood education. I get people who are in um, automotive programs. I get people who are in nursing programs, and they all come with that basic need of being able to to read and comprehend at a level where they can um, be successful in those jobs well let me tell when i went to to the tech school i thought man this is going to be the best because with what i'm going for there ain't going to be no math involved and you would not believe how disappointed i was when i was sitting in a math class with a bunch of nursing students because it was required that i take vocational math and so I got to spend uh, an entire semester learning the metric system. You could see how excited I was. But now, <laughs> with my current job, I use the metric system every single night. So I'm really glad I, I the education that I did not want actually ended up helping me out because we don't do Fahrenheit where I work at. It's all Celsius. I became a wizard at converting that stuff. Um, I'm trying to think. Anything else you want to talk about? Um, I mean, that that pretty much hit the the big areas with education that I know that you and I discussed. And, you know, going back and thinking about it, you you can see how all of those things intertwine um, with just the state of education today, why it is the way that it is, and then even with our current events, like with the COVID problem, um, and, and how that's impacted it. Because, like I said, it, it was not ideal before, but it's really not ideal right. now. Me and Mom were talking today about it. She said that uh, there was somebody that she was talking to, supposedly through this or that or whatever, that a lot of kids don't know how to read even like cursive writing now. They, it's, it's become like a secret code to them. Yeah, and interestingly enough it's, it's one thing i didn't mention earlier but you know when i said that we changed the name of the common core standards to college and career ready standards the only change they made to the curriculum was that um students um around fourth or fifth grade they, they let the school districts to st- decide i know where i'm at it's fourth grade so i actually do teach cursive writing well, yay <laughs> um but it, it and I also, we had this discussion in a, a professional development course that I took at Mississippi State this summer um, on teaching with primary and secondary sources. Um, if we're going to teach our students to go back and look at these things to understand history and context, a lot of these historical documents are written in cursive. Um, very true. You know, and we see that a lot of students sign their name in print because they've never been taught to sign their name in cursive. So... One thing that we are doing now is teaching them how to uh, read and write in cursive. It's not anything as systematic as what you and I did in school. Like I remember <laughs> watching the lady with the chalkboard. Oh my god, yeah, I hated that one. Under curve slant. <laughs> under curve slant. 
Oh my and god. Midline to the finish. Yeah, that's seared into my brain forever. But um they're they have to take a test um that shows that they are proficient in it. I say proficient like it doesn't have to be immaculate, but they can take a they're asked to write a paragraph in cursive and they're asked to sign their name in cursive. And it, okay. you know, you just kind of evaluate: were they able to do this or not? Well, look, but, I've never had very good penmanship at all, and and because <laughs> like in first or second grade or something, they had us like write our name at the beginning of the year. Then at the end of the year, they wanted us to write our names so they could see how much we progressed. And <laughs> this guy hadn't went anywhere; <laughs> it was horrible. And I remember, like, I remember writing cursive like God forever. Now, I was probably in junior high or something, and I saw somebody <laughs> printing. I'm like, Wait, we can print now? Like, like yeah, you idiot. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I've been writing cursive from like second grade to seventh grade. I'm like, oh, I can stop doing that crap now because you couldn't read it. It was horrible. And so I've I've just done printing ever since I was in seventh grade. You know, um, only time I write anything in cursive now is is my, to sign my name. But, you know, who wants to read my name? Because I sure shouldn't be writing notes from my boss in cursive because she would be lost as a goose because <laughs> it's not legible in the least. You know, we have been friends for, God, a while, like five, six years now. Oh, it's been longer than that. Really? Yeah. I mean, I guess it doesn't feel like it, but it has. I guess so. Yeah. But, you know, we have – I don't know if it's just – it never came up, but we have never ever like discussed politics or religion or anything like that. Never. I just thought about it the other day. I was like, you know, I have never talked to Mesa about like the most controversial stuff you could talk to somebody about. I guess it's because we both knew where each other stood on stuff. And so I just never brought it up because, you know, I didn't want you to hate me or anything. Um, let me do an ad read real quick. We got a sponsor for our first show. Get my ad read together here. This episode of the Hango Show is brought to you by Ebels.com. Ebels.com has premium CBD products sourced from American farmers for all your pain management needs. Liquid CBD in a variety of doses. Uh, and my personal favorite is their CBD freeze gel. I've got all kinds of aches and pains from being an old man with sports injuries and just, you know, living uh but the evils freeze gel knocks them out cold visit evils.com and use the discount code hango for 15 percent off your purchase that's evils.com e-a-b-l-e-s.com they'll treat you right that freeze gel is some good stuff i get lubed up with it every night when i get home from work every morning now i'm working nights um oh i want to pull up an article Let's talk about the stimulus bill. While you're pulling that up, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to. One thing that I meant to mention earlier, too, um, with it was an article that I read today, actually, and we were talking about how difficult this has been on everybody, but especially teachers. Um, one of the, the biggest struggles in education right now, nationwide, is the teacher attrition rate. Um, teachers come in 
they get at least a four-year degree, many of them masters, and they go into the classroom and they see exactly what they have to put into it um, and then all of the drama that they get from administration or parents and then they get that paycheck and then they're like, nope. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> well, well I, holla. That, um, uh, what's you may not even know this. What is the difference of a paycheck from a public school to a private school or to an academy? That's really it depends. Um, actually, and a lot of people are blown away when I tell them this. A lot of private school teachers are actually paid less than public mm. school teachers. Um, well, that that article that I read today, it was. It was sad, but at the same time, it's like it, it really makes you think where we're going to be at once all of this is over with the pandemic because we were losing teachers at an alarming rate before, and now mm. the best are leaving. Um, veteran teachers are choosing early retirement, and this was an opinion article written by a veteran teacher who retired early um, this year after 27 years. She was trying to make it to the 30-year mark, but um, just... Wait, she quit after 27? Mm-hmm. Just, yeah. She was just over it. Yeah, she was... This It was hard enough as it was, but then with all of this added on top of it and, you know, on top of all of the regular struggles of teaching now, you have to add in what we were expected to do because of COVID-19. Um you know, working endless hours on top of hours. And, you know, a lot of administration have been graceful. Thankfully, you know, where I work, we know we get reminded all the time from the very top that, you know, they appreciate what we do and they know that what we're doing now is hard and that they couldn't do it without us. But in some places you have people going in, carrying on evaluations, business as usual, and you really can't evaluate teachers in an environment like this right now because they're really just trying to do the best they can. With we, We've had to go back and, and completely rethink and undo everything that we've been taught to do that are what we call best practices in education. How do children learn best? Well, we can't work in cooperative groups right now because of social distancing. So then you're back to the model of putting desks in rows and having children work independently all the time. And that's just one tiny example. But it's really not fair to come in and and evaluate somebody when, you know, they may have a sick loved one or maybe they've lost a loved one and they're they're grieving or they have depression and anxiety, and they're in the, they're trying to get through it and worry about not getting sick themselves. Um, you know, so there's all of this, but that article, um, and I'll send you the link to it. It was just really like yes, and I'll put it in the uh, show notes so everybody can. Yeah, I th- I thought wow, you know, we're already struggling to to have quality teachers as it is. And now we've got other people who wanted to stick around leaving because of this. So it makes you wonder what, what's going to be left when it's all said and done. Now this article comes from uh, reason.com about the stimulus bill, a little bit of a breakdown. Uh, so Congress reached a deal on Sunday to pass a 2.3 trillion spending bill that includes 900 billion worth of COVID-19 relief for families and businesses 
But until Monday afternoon, no one knew for sure what was actually in the bill. Well, the 5,593-page behemoth has finally been released to the public, as well as to the curious legislatures who were supposed to vote on it. Just printing the monstrosity was nearly a fatal task. The file containing it was, was, was so overwhelmingly that it kept crashing Congress's system. So the bill, when they were trying to print it out on paper, would crash the Congress computer system. The main thrust, the main thrust of the COVID relief package is to provide $600 per person to per person to people below a certain income threshold and to expand the paycheck protection program for various businesses, but that's not all the spending bill does, not by a long shot. For instance, one section of the spending bill also instructs the Smithsonian Institute to create two new identity-based museums, one for women and one for Latinos. The legislation refrains from using the term Latinx. The bill also takes a position on the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama, expressing that in the view of the U.S. government, quote, the wishes of the 14th Dalai Lama, including any written instruction, should pay a key role in the selection, education, and veneration of the future Dalai Lama. This is, this is in a COVID relief bill. <laughs> the bill includes a provision prohibiting any federal funds from being used by the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now, or ACORN, an activist group that no longer even exists in the United States. It attempts to normalize U.S. foreign relations with Sudan, criminalizes illegal streaming, and creates a plan for building the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library in North Dakota. Roosevelt was from New York. It, in short, this is an everything-in-the-kitchen-sink bill. It contains dozens, if not hundreds, of policy proposals, and ought to be considered on their own merits, not attached to pandemic relief and smuggled into law by a desperate and confused Congress that has no idea what it's voting for. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat of New York, complained quite reasonably that it's crazy to expect legislatures to commit to voting for a bill they scarcely have time to read. She said on Twitter, quote, Congress is expected to vote on the second largest bill in U.S. history today. $2.5 trillion, and it's about 1 p.m. Members don't even have the legislative text of it yet. Representative Justin Amash, my homeboy, the libertarian from Michigan, has for years complained about legislatures being expected to vote for bills they haven't even read. He echoed Ocasio-Cortez's concerns on Twitter by saying, for half a year, the congressional leaders refused to put any legislation on the floor to be considered and scrutinized and then amended. Now they release a 500 a 5,593-page bill with no opportunity to read it, let alone amend it. No reasonable legislature should vote for such a thing. How bloated is this bill? Well, Mesa, it was literally brought into the chamber in a wheelbarrow. They had to bring it into Congress on wheels. See, this is... This is a problem. You think? I mean, <laughs> well, well here's spoken. <laughs> every seriously though, this is this kills me because we see it everywhere. You know, obviously federal level, but we see it state level too. And it's you know, I'm not saying it's one side or another, but it's people. No, it's, it's all people. Of them. They're packing in the pork, right? They're monkeying with people's livelihoods, um, and and. You know, like I said, some people mean well. You know, they they take those jobs and and they take them in a a way to be a servant to no, their constituents. No, no, no. no, no some some do. No, no. I'm not saying a majority, but None. some do. None. 
Come on now. Tar and feather. Look, Bring it back. Who asked, who asked me about running for a local office? Hey, don't start That's this. Good. Okay. We're not doing this. All right, then. <laughs> <I hate laughs> but <you. laughs> seriously, though, that drives me nuts because you have people out there that are hurting. Um, yeah, but they're not that, because they've been getting – every one of them got paid a hundred and what ninety thousand dollars they right. didn't miss any time from work but and that that's just this i don't even understand how this tactic is still a thing but it's it's it happens every time there's something major to vote on they they pack in so much that nobody has time to read the fine print let me tell you why they do it and it's just you know it's crazy let's say it's insane let's say that you are a congressperson and you vote against this because you don't have time to read it you want to stand by your principles and say, I'm not going to vote for anything. I can't read and know what I'm voting on. Well, then this next election cycle, I'm going to run against you. And what you didn't know was in that bill, they made it illegal to kill puppies and you voted against it. Right. And so when I run my political ads, I'm going to say Mesa, the puppy killer. Right. She's all for <laughs> killing puppies in the street. That's It's all this is. They're going to pack as much shit into this, it's like stuffing a Thanksgiving turkey. They're just going to pack it in there and push it on into the oven because the minute somebody votes against it, they're going to say, "Oh, they voted against X, which was in that." Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all. It's, it's this is political posturing, as it always is in Washington, as it always is in every state capital, as it is in every city hall. Politicians are useless. They're useless people. I know you believe that. There's one shining star out there somewhere <laughs> that's doing the right thing, but I'm here to tell you something. There ain't. No good. What say you? There there are. No, there are not. There are. There are. No. no. Like I said, I don't think there's a majority, but I do I do think there are some people out there that that mean well. Are you on the Trump wagon now that he wants two thousand dollars for everybody? Hell no. <laughs> You even asked me that. Come like on I now. Said, um, and I apologize to anybody with sensitive ears. We don't apologize here. I know that. There's no apologies in this place. Well, you know, I mean, people that know me are, are going to laugh at that too. But anyway, <laughs> it's like I said, like I said earlier, though. Like, what is a thousand dollars? What is or two thousand? What is six hundred when you have all of these? Bills stacked up. We're printing the money. This is making a million per person. That you can't pay. I just think that when you have that many people together, there's there should be somebody that, that can come up with something to be more reaching to help folks than here's six hundred dollars. Have a good day. I got a I got a I got a news flash for you. Just came across the wire. Politicians don't care. Because they're getting paid. I, t- I lived in New Hampshire for a little while. And I, they have got the, the best structure to their state uh, Congress. They get paid, I'm going to misquote it, either 100 or 200 a year. They have not had a, their, their Congress people in New Hampshire, their state Congress people that meet in Concord, have not had a pay raise since 1899. Because the state wanted to make sure that if you're coming here 
to do public service, you're not going to profit off of it. That's the way it should be. Right. Uh, in our state, they get a base pay, but they get per diem, but they get so much extra for every committee they serve on. I think one guy, I think the highest paid one in our state was like 80000 a year, plus for a part-time job, mind you. Our state Congress Congress people aren't full-time employees of the state. They work a part-time job. Right. And this, a lot of them have money, too. No. That's surely not. You, was, you mean they bought their way into office? I didn't say that. I didn't. Well, Messa, anything else you want to say tonight? <laughs> I think we covered just about everything we wanted to talk about. Anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I think that's that's about it. Well, thanks for being on my first episode. Well, thank you. I hope you'll come back again. Of course I will. Can we get in a fist fight next time? Sure. Yes. I'll, I'll make sure to beef up before then. You better hit them weights, girl. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Messa, for coming on. Thank you. You're the best. You're the best. I love you. I love you. Love everybody. Uh, Peace, love, and anarchy. Love you all. Bye.